Welcome to Consider the Raygun, a podcast where I, Daniel Harper, read a book with a friend and then talk about it. Uh, this is episode three, and this time we are talking about Dune, the 1965 sci-fi classic, uh, one of the best-selling books uh, ever written uh, by Frank Herbert. Uh, we're not covering any of the sequels or any of the kind of ancillary stuff, any of the uh, movies or um, there was a TV movie in 2000 or anything like that. Um, we're only covering uh, the first book. Uh, this was uh, James's. Uh, pardon me. I am joined by, I almost forgot, I am joined by uh, my friend James Murphy once again on this one, who uh, you'll remember from the Pex Lives podcast, which is excellent. Go check that out. Or from episode one of this podcast, where we talked about Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, so go check that out. Uh, James uh, had never read Dune before, although I had uh, kind of read it as a, a child and had some uh, memories of it. We uh, talk a little bit about kind of the experience of reading it. Uh, we discuss the politics, obviously, um, of the book. Um, this was recorded before the big dividing line in American history, which was November uh, 8th, 2016. Uh, so uh, some of this um, may seem uh, slightly uh, off-kilter. Uh, I've been kind of sitting on this. I, I just haven't had the energy to uh, get this finished up and recorded and uh, posted. But uh, I think it's a great episode. There's some really, really interesting stuff that we end up talking about. We end up talking about the structure of the book. We talk about the characters. We talk about kind of what the book is trying to do, what it's trying to say. We talk about sort of the, the ethics of um, what it would be like to live in this society and what would a moral person on uh, a racket really look like. Um, we've got, it's a, again, it's a really interesting conversation, um, and I think you will enjoy it. Um, you can find all the episodes of this podcast and all the other podcasts I do at oispaceman.lipson.com. That's oispaceman.lipson.com. And you can find James at uh, pexlives.lipson.com. Uh, go check us out. Uh, he's at uh, on Twitter at jmcm1916. And I am at Daniel Lee Harper if you want to go find us on Twitter. Um, abbreviated intro today. I'm not going to summarize the book. I'm assuming you guys basically know what it is. Uh, just Google it. It's fine. Um, and until then, please enjoy the show. So... I'm totally expecting that in this 90-minute or so podcast, we're going to be able to solve all the uh, intricacies of the political and personal and uh, real-life political circumstances of this uh, 1965 novel. Uh, you know, we'll be able to tease out all the various ways in which the uh, the novel itself seems to reflect both the biases of its creator and the uh, biases at the time in which he lived, and all the stuff that's happened since then, and all the different ways that people have uh, responded to that. Um, what do you think, James? Do you think we'll be able to, uh, to do that today? I stand here entirely confident that that's what is going to happen, and I think the listeners are lucky to be joining us on this roller coaster journey that we've got ahead of them today. <laughs> um, all of which I basically say because I have no intention of beginning to get into the details of uh, exactly what uh, Frank Herbert's relation to uh, Islam was and uh, to uh, the way that uh, that might have, uh, I don't know, that, that's a really complicated topic. Um, probably somebody's life and work to, uh, to, to tease that out. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll touch on it, but um, I have no uh, sense of like that I have any unique perspective on that whatsoever. 
No, well, the thing about these sorts of uh, these sorts of conversations based around a very dense text, a text rich with a lot of um, history and politics deep within it, you kind of just have to go where the feeling takes you, where you're feeling in that exact moment, and just record the patterns of your own process um, as it is now. So I'm happy just to roll along. For 90 minutes on this one, just, uh, see where myself and, uh, yeah, yourself take it. I guess, uh, best place to start was this, this was your first time reading this, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, it's one of those ones that I had really meant to get to, uh, soon. I brought up the idea of doing it with you because, uh, my friend Gene says it was one of the greatest books that he's ever read. And he said it was quite possible that I wouldn't like it. So I was intrigued, and with uh, this wonderful and noble venture, this is the Ray Gun of Ontario, I thought, who bad to talk with? And uh, my friend Daniel, who knows so much about Latin science fiction, so that's, uh, that's kind of why we cover it here today. Is that Gene Mays you're referring to there? Yes, who I've known since I was about 14 via online. You know, uh, he's kind of my guru and has been for a while. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, now that I know that he, it's one of his favorite books, I, uh, I wish I'd invited him on for this because I'm sure that would have been a really fascinating conversation. Mm, no, he's an interesting guy who brings a rich and deep perspective to a lot of stuff. Um, I think, I think he's teaching himself ancient Egyptian at the moment, which is incredible. <laughs> I don't have anywhere near that kind of, um, patience or energy for, um, that sort of pursuit. Um, but uh, that's that's admirable and amazing, and uh, we're yeah. surely going to come across as uh, ignorant heathens to uh, Gene's uh, no doubt superlative knowledge on this. So I hope he's listening. Hi, Gene. How's it going? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess a, a good place to start then. Um, how did it, how did you uh, how did it find you? How did you like it? I liked it better than Strange Strange Land, which was the book we covered before. Um, I think that this certainly wanted to reach for a Lord of the Rings-style epicness. I can certainly see that that was an influence on the book. And I appreciated the scope of the book. I thought that several of the characters were very well drawn and very believable. Um, there was a similar issue that I had with Stranger in a Strange Land where the author's biases and attitudes as a now long-dead white man um, kind of grated up against me a little bit. It kind of got a little bit in the way of full enjoyment. But as a creative work and as a fully realised fictional world, it's very respectable. I've got no uh, hesitation in calling it a truly great but it's obviously one with a lot of flaws. Yeah, it's very clearly a great book, but I'm not sure it's a particularly good one, if you're allowed to make that mm. distinction. I Let me tell you, I, I read this for the first time when I was 13 years old, and I promise this podcast is not always going to be a book that some, somebody read when they were a teenager. <laughs> um, although the first three episodes <laughs> seem to have become that. But um, I, I read this book when I was 13 years old, and I have a, a bit of a kind of personal relationship with it, just because it was... Uh, 
loaned to me or it was recommended to me by a beloved seventh grade teacher that I had who, uh, my English teacher, who, uh, I had read in 1984 and he said, oh, if you like science fiction and you like that, you should check out Dune. And I had no idea what I was getting into, but the local, the, the public library had it, or the, I think the school library had it. And, uh, I read it in the winter of, uh, 1993, <laughs> you know, just, just from that kind of context. And then, uh, that teacher ended up lending me his personal copies of all the future sequels, which I read over the course of the next six months or so. Um, and so I do have this uh, very uh, fond memory of being a kid, uh, being a kind of a young teenager and reading this. But I didn't really reread. I mean, I reread the, the first book a few times over my teens, but I didn't really reread any of the sequels. So I only have like the vaguest memory about what happens in those uh, six uh, Frank Herbert novels. But it's interesting kind of coming back to it and, and reading it. It's it's almost like a uh, like a like a. Uh, a comfortable old blanket in a certain way to me, um, because I mm. remembered that that first forty um, percent of the book, the first section, uh, I remembered enjoying quite a bit, liking a lot of that, a lot of the kind of Paul training with his um, master sort of thing, and uh, Gurney Halleck and Thufir Howat, you know, the relationship between Paul and his son and Paul and his mom and the the Gomter Bar and all that stuff, just um, kind of, I don't know, it's it's very comforting to me. But I found myself kind of strangely um, bored by it this time, um, particularly that first section. I, I found myself kind of putting the book down and not wanting to come back to it um, very often, um, which is why this episode is slightly delayed from where I wanted it to be. Um, so I wonder, uh, what, are, what are your feeling on that kind of first, that first section the, uh, where they come to Arrakis? It was in many ways the most successful and kind of fascinating part of the book for me, because... Paul was still a, a a young man welling over his head. It was still a place rich with possibilities. You could have gone anywhere in this rich new world in the narrative. Um, so I would, I maybe because it was uh, my first time reading it, it was a, um, yeah, it was more interesting because of that. It was more interesting because I didn't know where the story was going, and. One thing I will talk about later is the status and competence of the characters uh, throughout the book did take away from my enjoyment a certain degree. You spoke about before how there was a there was some boring stretches in the book, and I think there certainly was. And part of what is boring is these very competent, noble characters making these very competent, noble decisions. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Um, I find uh, what I think what kind of I had an issue with, or, or um, you know, it's, I guess I'll, I guess before I uh, say anything, I'll ask you another question. How did the, um, the nomenclature of the book strike you? How did the, uh, the fact that there's a glossary at the end <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the book does kind of throw you in at the deep end and expecting you to kind of follow along with a lot of this stuff. Um, how was the experience of reading that for you? Did you find yourself having to, scurry to the end and look things up and kind of figure it out or did you did you follow along um no i followed along okay actually because um i i have been used to being thrown in the deep end with other sorts of novels um and you just have to roll with it as though you're starting to learn a new language um the first time i really came across it was when i read a clockwork orange by Anthony burgess when i was about 12 or 13 and i was really um aggravated that there are all these words coming up that I didn't know the meaning of. And then on 
my second read, maybe two years later, it's a really useful and quick way of getting you into this fictional world, of taking you away from your own time and place into another one. Um, and if it's done well, if it's done in such a way where you can sense the uh, amount of work and thought that's gone into these fictional languages, then I can always go along for the ride, as long as there's a inner sense, as long as it rhymes with itself. And I mentioned Lord of the Rings before, um, Tolkien's great at giving you a fake language and fake slain terms and a new location to deal with. And I think Frank Herbert is too. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that you run into with this book is that, um, I mean, comparing it to Lord of the Rings, which is the obvious counterpoint, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Tolkien was a philologist. He was interested in, like, the origins of languages and, does, I mean, basically wrote the Lord of the Rings to to centerize this uh, language that he, or these languages he had created. Whereas mm -hmm. um, what uh, the, the Genesis of Dune is basically a uh, treatise on a particular kind of like low water ecology. <laughs> and um, he kind of builds this whole world around this idea of this planet and, and like exploring the ecological ideas that he kind of got obsessed with because he was living in the uh, Pacific Northwest and, and sand dunes in the Pacific Northwest and um, just found himself like kind of fascinated with that and studied ecology for several years, like just independently, and then wrote this book and basically kind of arguably invents ecological science fiction. Um, out of that, which is, uh, I think a lot of its legacy is not really, I mean, it does, it does kind of have the story elements and the, the, uh, the world building and all that stuff, but a whole lot of the reason that it's, um, lived as long as it has is because of that, that world. I mean, the world itself, the actual, um, the way he's kind of playing with those ideas. And it's very clear when you look at like what's actually paid attention to in the novel, like the way that the water collectors work and the still suits work and the way that the, uh, the life cycle of the, um, the worm and that sort of thing, uh, that's central to the experience of reading the book. Um, mm. even more so, I think, than the, the kind of political machinations, um, at least on probably like a fourth or fifth read for me, I definitely got that kind of, that kind of stuff really stood out to me even more than it did. Um, earlier. Uh, I will say, just going back to the language, uh, reading this at 13, I'm pretty sure this is the book that taught me the word jihad, if that. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and I had no, I mean, it was it was very much one of those things where I had like a general sense that, oh, this is supposed to be kind of vaguely, uh, you know, I kind of, I knew what Islam was, obviously, but had no like cultural context for it in like 1993 in Alabama um, yeah. when I was 13. And so, um, you know, there is this friction for me reading it now and realizing like, oh shit, this is so appropriative. This is so like, oh, this is uh, very much a man from outside of this culture writing about this culture, but writing it in this science fiction way. Um, and this mishmash of the stuff that's, the stuff that he's made up and the stuff that's real and the way that that is affected in his own mind <laughs> and the way that, that you know, the thing you could read a very racist uh, portrayal of uh, Islam into this book, and people have. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I, I think uh, there are people on the kind of American right who are, who basically use this book as a, a sort of a, like training manual for Islamophobia in a lot of ways. Right. Um, Orson Scott Card wrote a piece about it. I was doing like <laughs> I did some research, which means I read some Wikipedia articles and did a little bit of googling. And uh, I did kind of run across some stuff where Orson Scott Card was using his, uh, 
you know, that shit, uh, Islamophobia, and then using this book as a metaphor for it, which um, is obviously a uh, problematic thing, um, but not something I think we can necessarily lay at Frank Herbert's feet, that, that the book has been misused, um, because I think the book is better than that, and it's more complicated than that. Um, Certainly there's a reductionist view of the of the desert people, um, and I think that he would have been just as well to make up entirely new words. You know, I think the word jihad strikes out of the book as though it had been written in big red letters. It doesn't fit there. But the kind of Islamic standings, whilst they are othered, whilst they're definitely different, they are still human beings, they're still characters, and they're still rational, and they still want the best for the uh, the planet, you know? Right. Um, which is at odds with um, almost all Islamophobia. Well, I, no. I find, I find, I mean, it's. I think that Herbert has a very sympathetic view in a way. I mean, he's a good enough writer to kind of create these kind of political complexities because he. I mean, he literally names them the Fremen, right? <laughs> and that's not an obvious showing his hand in this kind of. Um, book that is so surrounded with these uh, kind of counts and dukes and emperors and this uh, very overt uh, colonialist narrative. I mean, there, There is no subtlety to the fact that this is explicitly colonialism in the early 20th century and like fighting over battle, fighting wars for oil. You know, I, I, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt that that was on Frank Herbert's mind. Um, although I, I don't think that he's quite 100% with the angels, but he, but he does name the, the indigenous people, the Fremen, which I think mm. is, um, you know, he, he's sympathetic towards them. Um, despite the fact that he kind of, you know, you really only get a handful of them that really have any kind of personality. And the book itself is kind of focused on these, on the, the, the opinions and the feelings and the actions of this ruling class. And this sort of Paul becomes this Lawrence of Arabia character. I feel, yes. you know, yes, that's a great uh, contrast to Paul Daniel, yeah, and um, yeah, the space white people are certainly the ones that matter the most. That's clear, and they're the ones given the first person perspective throughout. Um, but you do, as I say before, you do get a decent understanding of this indigenous culture and of the personalities they're going up against. I wonder if it could have been written any other way, because your uh, your average person's kind of first images that come up in their mind when they talk about Islam, it's it's sandy, it's desert, it is doom. Um, but then they haven't just replaced um, oil for water in the story that they're fighting over, and the spice isn't just oil. But I suppose, actually, as I say this out loud, there's also the the poppy fields that you get in a lot of Arabic countries as well. So it could also be heroin too, you know? Um, So, yeah, I guess that is there. That does lie there. Well, the spice uh, melange allows for, I mean, it's kind of all things, right? Um, It allows for space travel, Mm. uh, for fast and light travel because you're not allowed to have machines, which is something we might get into or might not. I don't know that that's particularly interesting <laughs> in the context of all the other stuff that's in this book, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, the fact that technology of the, the machine intelligence is allowed, um, in this universe. Um, but the, the spice melange allows for space travel, which is kind of the big thing, like economically. And that's obviously a sort of like 
oil analog, right? But it's also this thing that allows for these altered states of consciousness, and it allows for, I mean, the um, the the prophetic visions and the uh, the Reverend Mothers and the uh, I mean, you know, everybody seems to rely on homage for everything. Yeah. you know, it's not it's just the ultimate MacGuffin, isn't it? Right. I mean, it's just this is just this thing, and and uh, I found it just just on a when you start looking at the numbers level, you know, the um, the idea that it's been I think forty generations. That they've been, uh, that the Bene Gesserit have been, uh, building for the, uh, for this, uh, Paul Atreides character. You know, they've been, they've been breeding for yeah. 800 years and it's just, it's not, it's just kind of, oh yeah, we've been doing this for four generations. Uh, the idea that the amount of money that it costs to transport the, uh, Sardaukar to Arrakis for this, uh, coup was worth the, <laughs> The total amount of spice that's produced on this planet for fifty years, like that's how long it takes to pay back the debt incurred off of uh, this one like military victory, and that this yeah. is just kind of treated as like, oh yeah, that's the thing. Although it doesn't really specify whether whether that's profit or whether that's uh, you know wholesale value, you know. Like, is it the total amount of spice produced or just the profits on the spice produced? But um, either way, it's this gargantuan sum, and yet um, there is this sense that everybody's thinking in terms of these very long uh, timescales. Like, nobody's thinking in terms of just a year or two down the line. People are thinking in terms of generations um, and centuries, which is uh, a very kind of fascinating one of the central fascinations I think of the characters in the book is that everybody's thinking in these very, very long time scales. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about that. It's an ecological viewpoint, isn't it? What they've done is they've become people, maybe it's because the human race is by this stage so ancient, or maybe it's an evolution of the mind um, they all go through eventually will stop being so darn short-sighted as we are now as we uh, stand in the 20th and 21st century and allow our planet to become uninhabitable. Um, maybe it's a hopeful idea for the human race that it will become capable of planning for the long, long, long term. Um, on the other hand, it's, it is quite an inhuman way of doing things, and I dislike that idea of surrendering yourself to a centuries-long cause. Now, if your tools is like the Fremens and you're going to make a planet habitable for the children of your children's children, you're going to turn the desert into grass and water, then yes, goodness me, you can uh, stand in that fight against them. But if you're uh, part of the Bay Jesserits and you're going to do the long, long, long con and um, set up these hoops of belief, in these underdeveloped societies and set up prophecies that, uh, you know, these cunning con women can step into needs must um, have a manual of this is the con that you've walked into as ongoing. You must act this way to support the viewpoint. It's a little more sinister, but what it does do is give a sense of the timeline and the plot being in the far-off future in a way that some stories don't really do. Um, this isn't 1965 with hovercrafts. This is 10,000 years down the line, at least, isn't it? And uh, that's kind of to the benefit, because 
you, you're dealing with a different different perspective on the universe by that point. Yeah, by by I, I mean I think one of the things that the book does do effectively, and I'm just gonna put a put a button on that um, because I agree. Is it really? There's no one in this book that feels like, you know, we talked about uh, Ben Caxton and Stranger to Strangeland, kind of feeling like a you know a 1960 or 1950s newspaper reporter, um, just kind of transported into this like near future kind of thing. There, exactly. There's no like mid 20th century character kind of walking around and going like, well, you know, democracy might be something we want to try or something. You know, like there's no there's no sense of that. These are very um, you know, everyone in this book, regardless of how sympathetic or unsympathetic, and regardless of how, like, quote-unquote human we find them, has a uh, perspective that does seem alien to the 20th century or 21st century. There's mm-hmm. no one that really feels like, um, you know, someone that that, that is really almost a viewpoint character, right? Like, like it's it, we're almost uh, bereft of that in this uh, book. Uh, no, did you find uh, any characters to be particularly sympathetic in your read through? Not of the main cast. Um, it's been a little, a couple of weeks now since I've read it. Um, what's the name of the Fremen leader that becomes uh, Paul's advisor and friend? Oh, uh, Stilgar. Uh, yes, Stilgar. I found him sympathetic. I liked him. Um, I thought he was a good character, a good leader, but. For the people who whose minds you see into, absolutely not. Um, and I think that some of it, again, is because of their mobility and their class and their perspective. But to another extent, you're being kept at arm's length by the pros. And all throughout the book, there's excerpts of future history being dropped in. And that's a method of further alienating the the reader from the text. It's constantly reminding you that at some point this story is going to be over. It doesn't let you get fully present um, in the story in that sense. So I think the fact that the characters, the main characters, are just just a little bit too too high standard, Um, not down there in the dust, in the sand, in the dirt, I think that that is on purpose, and I think that might be because Herbert's trying to contrast them with the earthier surroundings that they're in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, when you when you talk about that first, and and I mean, one of the things is that it, it's forty percent of the way through the book, um, I, through on my e-reader. Um, it's almost literally forty percent. It's about two hundred pages in the um in the original text. Uh, before you get to uh the death of Duke Leto and uh, Paul's kind of escape and he kind of, the, the second section in Tata Mwadib, um is, is about 40% of the way through the book. So, and, and that's really where the narrative really begins for me. You know, for the most part, the first, uh, you know, that first 40% is we're introducing a bunch of characters and situations and we're kind of letting you into this world. Um, and I find that those sections do have kind of a stop and start quality to them, you know, because every few pages are kind of switching perspectives. Um, I remember reading this as a kid and actually liking Paul in these sections. Um, and I think he's still sympathetic, 
but I think now kind of rereading as adults, I definitely see him as much more of a, like kind of a shitty kid. You know? yeah. um, he definitely comes across uh, in, a, in, a, in a less sympathetic, I mean, not necessarily less sympathetic, but in a less, uh, I, I see him as just kind of, Oh yeah, you're just, you're just kind of a snot nosed rich kid. And I, I don't yeah. really like you in the same way that I did when I, I read it originally. Um, but then again, towards the end, I mean, he's, you know, he does have this uh, kind of central conflict where he has these prophetic visions and he is kind of becoming this this great um, figure of myth. And I think we're supposed to see him as sympathetic because he's constantly having this uh, kind of mental battle uh, and this kind of a crisis about uh, how to avoid this kind of bloody jihad that he sees is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and not wanting to be the figure in which this, you know, that under his name, millions, if not billions of people are going to be, you know, slaughtered. And yet, I think towards the end, the book kind of loses that thread to some degree. Um, and I think in the, you know, I, I have vague memories of the sequels, but basically what happens is the jihad happens and billions of people die <laughs> under the name of Muad'Dib in the sequels. Like that's that's just what happens. Um, so the fact that Paul, like he he spends I mean, much of the conflict of the book, at least in terms of his perspective, is this you know question about what is Paul going to do? How is he going to avoid this? And then the the answer is like, oh fuck it, I'm going to become him. It's fine, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think there's a need. For any sequels, um, I, I haven't read any of them. I haven't even browsed the plot summaries on Wikipedia. I'm not compelled to do so, um, and I really respect Dune as a book, but the plot should end where this book ends, uh, because um, it's extraneous after this point. The story's been told there. I don't want to call it a cash-in because I'm certain that's not what it was. Uh, I think there's an element of that. I was kind of looking into it, and the the first sequel isn't written until several years later, and um, Herbert himself had had some financial difficulties, so it wouldn't surprise me to learn that basically uh, he just decided, uh, yeah, I need to make some money, Um, and just (laughs) uh, wrote these books until he died, because the last book is published the year before he died. Um, And now his son (laughs) and uh, Kevin J. Anderson have uh, continued, and they've written, I think, two sets of trilogies that have continued the story or have done or actually just prequels and then two additional standalone novels. So there are a total of 14 books in this series to date. Based on what I've read, it's unnecessary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I'm finishing this book. I was definitely kind of thinking on the, like, it might be interesting to kind of revisit those books. Um, probably not in this kind of systematic way, but I, I might pick them up and just see kind of, what's in there and see if there is anything uh, worthwhile um i remember really liking bits and pieces of them i think there's a for one thing the uh the, the original frank herbert versions um increasingly the bene Gesserit just become sex witches um which is uh just always a fascinating thing right um yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh you, you get a lot more uh, kind of detail about uh, some of the some of the backstory about some of these uh, other worlds and you get kind of like what the Butlerian jihad was uh, for instance and the uh other elements of that kind of nature um and what the kind of long-term consequences um you get uh uh one of um Paul's sons becomes a sandworm and lives four thousand years. Um, that's, that's that's interesting. That's an uh, interesting turn I didn't foresee. Yep, yeah, there's there's that's that's God Emperor Dune. That's the fourth book in the series. Um, so so there is some there is some interesting stuff. But 
I think the overall consensus is that um, this is really the essential one and all the rest are kind of like, if you're interested in this world and want to keep wallowing in it, continue. But um, I have had no interest in revisiting any of the the ones that are not written by Frank Herbert, for instance. I have, like, no interest in that. But I might reread the Frank Herbert ones. Mm. Um, I expected... Um, I mentioned Twilight Zone in our last uh, Considered a Ray Gun, um, just based on that Twilight Zone conceit of it was Earth. I really, really thought that the last chapter would be that Arrakis had always been known as Earth before then. <laughs> and I respect Herbert for not going down that obvious route. I never even considered that, and I'm so glad that that is not a part of this book. <laughs> <laughs> because it so easily could have been, couldn't it? Oh my god. Yeah, yeah that would have been disgusting. <laughs> Look what we did to the planet. That could have been the uh, overarching message of the series. Uh. I think you've uh, I think you've read uh, or seen Planet of the Apes too many times. And of course this uh, predates Planet of the Apes. So, um, True, yeah. Well. No, I certainly have seen Planet of the Apes too many times. <laughs> yeah, I must podcast on this. We're going to have to do a podcast on Planet of the Apes, or the series. I, I could... It would be interesting to do the whole series at some point. But, um, Up to, uh, anyway, let's concentrate <laughs> on June. <laughs> let's not meander here. Um, yeah. Us uh, meander on a podcast? No way, James. Never. I guess uh, another another uh, angle I would, I would, you mentioned uh, at the beginning that you found the, some of the characters compelling and uh, interesting. And uh, I'm wondering, like, uh, what, what did you find in terms of characters or situations or... Uh, um, some of these secret societies or these, these groups, like what stood out to you as being interesting and compelling um, in your read of this? I really liked uh, the Duke Leto because mm-hmm. he's the the father, um, because he was a character unlike so many of them who was presenting a front to the world that wasn't necessarily himself, and to a certain extent, Jessica does as well. She takes on that highly poised, noble-born pose there. But Leto, I get the sense that he's a slightly, um, I don't want to use the word cowardly, but a man who's not immediately inclined to be the brave warrior that the society has demanded him to be. So I like that tension, and it's something that is missing from a lot of other characters is these people existing on these uh, these continuing levels of personality. Yeah, and I guess really, I guess really that there I guess that there is a character who does give that slightly modern twentieth century view, it is Duke Leto, because he is the one who like cares for his men. He is the one giving the slightly sly eye at some of the violence and the way that um, some of these kind of interscene uh, wars are happening. He has a little bit of a, a wry, sarcastic view towards some of it, which, until you pointed it out, I, I never even, you know, never really connected with it. I see him as, um, naively, I guess, I see him as almost this, uh, <laughs> um, almost a caricature of the, of the quote-unquote good uh, royal, you know, sort of thing. Um, mm. as, as the, you know, he's, he's a royal, but he's, uh, he cares ever so much about his men enough to, uh, to, to try to save their lives, despite the fact that the spice harvester is clearly more valuable than their lives, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and he's portrayed as being a good man because he's a strong leader. But um, you're right; he does he does kind of project some of that much more so than uh, 
you know, is really because you do get to see through his eyes however briefly. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're right, he is a little bit more nuanced than that. And I did like Jessica. Um, she was a, a yeah. Um, certainly, I don't believe Herbert has the same issue with women that we had with uh, Strange in a Strange Land. So she was a fairly well-rounded and well-written woman. Um, there's a couple of times where I found her personally too subservient to a society that had gone back to this medieval perspective on women. Um, but her own journey is such a big part of the book and it's so much a consideration of the narrative that you can't help but feel Jessica in those three dimensions as well. And she's at her best, I think, as a character. I think the character is most well realised when she's at her uh, extreme limits, when she's dog-tied in the middle of the desert, unsure if she's going to survive and grieving. There's that um, continuing idea that we have today about a strong female character being a woman who constantly kicks ass and takes names, whereas... I believe Jessica the most when she's having that struggle, you know? Yeah, basically that middle section for her is, is the strongest. It's in between this sort of like after Leto dies before uh, Paul becomes the prophet, basically. Mm. Um, when she is really kind of acting independently and her Bene Gesserit training. And, and Paul really is, is subservient to her in a lot of ways, despite the fact that he is clearly our, our kind of main character. Um I find Jessica to be a really, I mean, you know, again, on in this book full of uh, kind of very alien psychologies, um, I find Jessica to be a sympathetic character. I think she reacts as a human being would, even though it's a human being that's encultured in this uh, very um, alien culture. Um, I also find her to be, I mean, you know, <laughs> let's not mince words about this. Gender essentialism is literally text of this novel, right? <laughs> um, so th- there, there is no sense in which you know th- there are you know male places and female places. Uh, you know that th- the the whole point of the Quetzal Tzadrach is the uh, the man who can who can drink the water of life and become the sort of reverend mother and look in the places where the women can't look. And so we're literally like building this whole thing around. And eventually, there's going to be this dude that can do all the things these women can't, right? Um, <laughs> we also never get a sense of like uh, you know this this kind of a woman being able to do. You know, there's no sense of like a woman could be emperor or anything like that, or like that the women could could actually rule the house. I mean, there's there's a very clear gender divide there. Um, that said, I don't think that I mean Herbert doesn't have the problem that Heinlein does. You're you're absolutely right there. Um, Jessica, despite the fact that um, she is uh, portrayed as this kind of sexual person or this this kind of empathetic mother figure, is in no sense uh, treated as weak because of that. Um, she's treated as having her own individual strengths. And um, the, the Fremen women, for instance, are, are over and over again portrayed as every bit as fierce as the men. Um, and the last line of the novel is uh, Chani, you know, J- Jessica says, uh, Chani, history will call us wives, you know, like, like so. So the fact that we're, I mean, Jessica begins and ends this novel in a way. So, so in a sense, it's her story, even though we're kind of following Paul around and he becomes a protagonist. There is a sense in which we're kind of viewing this through her eyes. And uh the Princess Arulin, who uh writes many of our um 
uh, kind of historical pieces, the uh, the stuff that's uh, the little uh, pieces of the Arrakis Awakened and all the other books that we get little snippets of. Um, yeah. So there is a strong female presence in this, and that you know within the confines of the fact that this is explicitly an essentialist uh, novel. Um, it does feel like there. You could definitely read this in a, in a much in a very sympathetic way, in a way that you really can't read something like Heinlein in that way. There is, whilst a certain patronising view of the uh, of the female gender, there's no misogyny here. There's nothing gross that attacks against the side of the book, you know, which uh, really helps it. And yeah, Charney is a character who goes on the journey, and there's. Um, there are there is the woman who um Paul takes on as a servant rather than a wife. Um, um Hera, I think her name is. Yes. Um but that's in some ways just showing the alienness of the culture that the uh Traides are moving in rather than what women are like. So um Yeah, and she gets yeah. to be a fully realized character. I mean, within the confines of like she she doesn't get that many lines and she doesn't get that many but even though she is subservient to uh Paul Moidib within the siege, you know, she she's she still gets to be a person. Yeah. Um talking about Hera, sorry, even even if she is the, the sort of like the, the lowest version, you know, the, the the lowest woman in the book, still gets some kind of sense of humanity. I'll tell you another know, female character I liked was the baby sister. Um, oh really God, Aaliyah is amazing, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. She's um, the moment <laughs> you first meet her outside of the womb. In fact, even within the womb, she's an amazing character. And yes, the baby's been given this incredible amount of knowledge and understands stuff beyond her years. But you also get the sense that she would have been amazing and kick ass even without it, you know? I love I love the way that um <laughs> uh I reread uh, the end of this novel yesterday and uh I was I was kinda reading the uh, the last, you know, twenty pages or so and the bit where Aaliyah is uh, literally she's talking to the Emperor and I think she sits on the edge of the throne or of a table and she's like her legs kind of uh flop around like I mean she's clearly a four year old girl, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's this tiny little girl. Um but yet she's she's uh speaking in this like highly politicized, highly like she she ends up killing the Baron, for instance, and uh, uh but but there is this she's simultaneously you know, Herbert is actually able to portray her as simultaneously a little girl and this like wizened spirit, which is a really tough thing to do, especially in a character whose eyes we never really see through. Mm. Um, she also um she's also explicitly given abilities that Paul Wadib doesn't have, um, because she has the ability to use the race memory to communicate with people in real time. So right. she can actually yeah. do the like telepathy thing with Paul or with uh, the Reverend Mothers. Which is uh, another kind of, uh, you know, it isn't quite to the point of like, and now a man's going to come along and solve all our problems, you know. <laughs> you do get that hint of there's a little bit more complexity there, which I like. That, um, that mental world within the book, that time spent within the characters' heads and the communication and time slowing down, that's all very impressive stuff as far as I'm concerned. It's really interesting. It's a fascinating kind of psychological glimpse into a certain way that our brains could go, and it's a it's kind of it's almost a geographic landscape the 
way the mind is treated within this book, which again makes sense from Herbert's obsessions of ecology. Um, I just really enjoy the stuff where, for example, Jesse Cherry is communicating with the unborn child, or Paul slows down time and starts having these uh, these prescient visions and all that sort of stuff. The mind in June is uh, as important as the real world that they walk upon. And that's something that I really do like about the book. There's this, uh, I, I agree with that. And, and uh, in particular, the uh, where uh, Jessica drinks the water of life and uh, yes. she emerges with not just her unborn daughter, but with all the other reverend mothers and the, the kind of uh, those, those prophetic visions that she starts to get. And, um, when Paul, when Paul drinks the water of life, um, for instance, and uh, you know he gets this uh, kind of extended sequence and kind of comes out changed. Uh, there, I like the way you describe it as a geography. There is this uh, sense in which you know this this story is very focused on the way that the landscape, the mental landscape, changes with experience and mm. the way that. Um, kind of history and sociology and psychology are all kind of one thing in a sense there there is this there is a, and this and that also kind of feeds back into this sort of uh the long-term vision of the book and the characters yes. of the book um no one's thinking about short-term advantage necessarily except for well we only talking about the baron Harkonnen, but he's explicitly <laughs> coded as a fool right you know yeah um, you know the the uh, the way that the uh, the, the characters are um, they're they're far eyed they're 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 looking out in the distance both in terms of themselves and in terms of their uh, view of uh, their societies and I think that like that equation of self knowledge with knowledge of the other is an interesting dynamic and and very like kind of proto hippie too right it's yeah. easy, it's easy to see I mean again. It's it's interesting that we did this right after Strange in a Strange Land because there's so many similarities and yet so many like very clear differences between these two novels, um, because they're both kind of focused on this sort of proto New Age kind of idea, but um, where Heinlein is kind of like making it all about this um, sort of uh, sexual awakening and uh, you know kind of the individual mind power sort of thing, um, Herbert is using it very much as like through this knowledge of ourselves we can work together to rebuild the world in which we live yeah um, there's an explicit like uh revolutionary fervor to this book it's, it's more concerned with the collective rather than the individual as Heinlein is concerned um and you're right it's so interesting that we have just accidentally Layered on these books that were published in so close a time together and were written around the same sort of period as well. Um, I really appreciate what you're saying about the, um, the self awareness leading you on towards a better awareness of the world because that's something I always do think about whether it's better to look at, you know, I'm very self centered, I say all the time. Um, and I wonder, is that a good journey towards understanding the world that I'm in and the people that surround me? Or is it a red herring? Um, should I get out there as much as possible and commune with other people? The answer is, of course, I obviously should. Um, people but, are overrated. They're, 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 no, just stay, just stay inside. Enjoy your uh, 
wealthy uh, garden created by uh, this this tropical plants and uh, sealed off with an airlock from the outside world and let everybody else thirst to death. I think that's the best way to, to go about it. <laughs> the, the idea of the water beggars and the way things are done on the planet, I love how well realized that stuff is. And the dew collectors, what a turn of mind to come across the idea of these people going out and collecting the dew in the morning. It's absolutely brilliant the way that Herbert has considered the use of water throughout this desert planet. That is, I mean, there is there is such a uh, focus on water, not just as, I mean, it would be easy to write the thing as a book that is focused on water as wealth. And I think mm. that the early chapters start to fall into that trap, that water is a symbol of wealth. Um, for these kind of ruling classes, that's exactly what it is. They don't thirst for water. They just live in this world in which water is very, very scarce. And so they use water as a, as a bargaining chip, as a literal bargaining chip for, for their kind of political games. Uh, once you get into the, the world of the Fremen, water is no longer a, a currency. It is life itself. Mm. And uh, the way that the kind of constant thirst influences the way that the society is constructed and the idea that uh if there is someone who you find in the desert who is not going to be able to care for themselves the the ethical thing to do and the thing that your society does is to just kill them and take their water because they're just going to waste it if you if you don't yeah. just take it from them you know um that's a fascinating fascinating thing to to be in a book like this um for me um and the in the book doesn't uh i mean it it allows the ecology and the society to intertwine and to influence uh psychology um in that way it allows you understand why these characters act this way even though obviously here in this land of where i you know i have water basically for free by turning on any tap um that's a monstrous, monstrous thing to do. But it's completely understandable within the context of this book. Yeah, and the the way that, for example, you know, even a tiny thing like tears, that's something that's been thought about, and the fact that Paul cries for the man that he kills, it helps him into this new society because tears are so precious of resource that you don't give them for anything. It's really quite poetic and lovely the way that uh, tears mean so much. There, it's like a uh, yeah, it's like a song lyric. I really like that. Yeah, he gives water for the dead, and that's that's yeah. a you know that's such a, a strong image. You know that they that the uh, I think there's an old woman who who feels his face and feels the moisture as he gives moisture for the dead, and that that's you know you're welcome among us now because you did this this thing that is so. Uh, sacrosanct that you were that you gave this up for this person that you killed like and that's really what what they suddenly accept him as one of them um that's yeah. that's a really pivotal moment in the book uh, which i think is interesting um yeah no <laughs> i feel like we're bouncing all around in this uh did you have any uh, particular like kind of uh angles you took on this that i haven't uh, brought up yet um well i think we definitely need to get into the if you like above world politics, because that is a a big big part of it, you know. Oh the yeah. Baron Hoffman and and uh, his son and his heir, um, you know, it's <laughs> it's uh, definitely a homophobic book. Oh um, God, 
oh, I I did not even remember that element of it. And re rereading it was it was oh right, that's what this book is all about. It's about how terrifying gay fat people are. Yeah. There's there's a I mean the the Atreides are portrayed as these like men and women of this very strong noble like i mean i kind of get a sense of like spanish nobility in the 17th century from the way that they're described um yeah which may just be me as a silly american and being completely historical but i sort of had this idea of like you know spanish galleons like these the people you know kind of in that kind of world and the harkonnens are like almost explicitly ugly fat space dutch jews you know (laughs) (laughs) um it's it's a shame um, that Herbert's vibrant imagination took it upon itself to um, imagine something that holds up the weight of a fat guy around him. Yeah, it's a little bit obscene, honestly, that he's taken his thoughts in that direction of how our space age technology can... Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's fat shaming in its most pure sense. Yeah, well, um, the suspensors are used in a couple of different places. I mean, they're, they're, it's this very like uh, specific piece of technology, you know, where it's this, this kind of anti-grav thing. And um, I don't know if you've seen the David Lynch movie, but in the Lynch movie, um, the Harkonnen, you know, the Baron Harkonnen is just portrayed as like suspended in space. He's just he's just sort of floating around. Um, but the book is explicitly not that. The book is like he's such a weakling. And yet he's so gluttonous and fat that he can only support so many pounds of his weight. So he's walking around with these like spindly legs. And uh, I mean, it, it really is this like grotesque, obscene image uh, when you yeah. look at it that way. And um, there's no Harkonnen who is not portrayed in that way. I mean, you know, the, the, the Beast Rabban, for instance, who is kind of this fat, ots-like kind of character, um, you know, very thick-headed. And then uh, Fade Rotha, who's the only other really Harkonnen that we get a, a uh, I guess the, the, what is it, Count Fenric, we get a little bit with him. But Fade Rotha, who is like explicitly coded as a sociopath, right? And mm. that's, that's about it. Um, who has like killed hundreds if not thousands of slaves in gladiatorial combat. <laughs> so so they're, they're, they're not only... They're not only uh, space Dutch Jews, but they're space Dutch Roman Jews, apparently. So, you know, yeah. it's like all the bad stereotypes that Frank Herbert could think of about what a terrible ruling class uh, would be. He's just heaped it all upon the Arconans. There's, um, you can see where Star Wars got some of its, uh, of its worst moments from as well, oh. can't you, in terms of the racial uh, politics. There, there is no doubt in my mind that George Lucas or uh, George Lucas's designers, whoever, I, there's a particular guy who did much of the design work for uh, Star Wars, and uh, I'm, I'm a bad uh, geek boy, so I don't remember the name of him, but um, it's no doubt that much of the design for uh, Star Wars comes straight out of uh, somebody read Dune too many times. Yeah, but um, you know, I enjoy the uh, the power play, the politics, or the novel. Even stuff around the Emperor, because that's so interesting, that's such a big part of our lives. But I come back to the same thing. Uh, they're all so damn competent at what they're doing. I don't think, first of all, that's realistic or true to life, that these manipulators um, do so well, because they don't. They'll always overreach. They always get to the point where their lies fall on themselves or their own hubris. Um, just takes them past their own paltry abilities. Um, it doesn't take 
a messianic figure like Paul come along and topple these systems down. Um, it's often the people themselves that will bring it to an end. And by having the Harkonnens scheme in these uh, very, very clever ways, I think that a lot of the... I don't want to use the word evil in the world. Yeah, I'll say that. A lot of the evil in the world undoes itself. And you don't really get a sense of that in the book. There is a sense in the book. Um, I mean, and this is a big... <laughs> Probably half this book is spent on political machination of one kind or another, right? <laughs> um, you spend a lot of time with uh, sort of members of upper courts uh, plotting against one another in various ways, um, which is normally, I mean, I, I'm kind of on record as, as being um, very bored by those kinds of books. But here it doesn't, I, I find it interesting enough because it's such a kind of fascinating alien world. Um, I think I find it uh it, it sort of works. Um, <laughs> I I definitely get your point about the uh, the fact that everybody's just a little bit too competent to this, um, and that the way that Herbert is portraying it is, you know, the person who's the smartest about faints within faints within faints and plans within plans mm. and within plans is going to ultimately win, despite the fact that ultimately it isn't that at all. Like Atreides, you know, Paul Atreides just has the best soldiers, right? <laughs> the Fremen just are able to like come in and. and kill everybody so it's fine you know he just gets to win so it, 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 it's, it almost undercuts itself at the end because it's not like paul has this like amazingly complex um you know set of uh, plans he basically says to the guild <laughs> we can destroy the spice and you're all gonna die and uh yeah the fremen are the most fearsome warriors in the universe because um hey look this planet sucks and that's pretty much how paul atreides wins at the end it's like um Within the action scenes, the the one on one fights, when you're so deep in these warriors' minds, because they think, okay, is that a faint that I'm getting there? Okay, so he's going slightly to the left, so I'll step in that direction as well, and I'll choose not to speak at this point. I don't know, it doesn't ring particularly true to me. I'm, uh, <laughs> as is abundantly clear, I'm no street fighting man, but any physical confrontation I've ever had in my life. It's not that cerebral. I don't think it is for many people. I think unless you're... And I understand if you're professional fighters um, who are trained in these arts and everything, but um, surely it's more about the body than the mind in those situations. And Herbert isn't that interested in the body unless it's a... Um, unless it's a a need the body has to have met, whether it be the thirst or the hunger or the tiredness. And even even sensuality is a little bit absent in the way Herbert sees um, the, the human body. I've been rereading Gulliver's Travels, uh, kind of in conjunction with a biography of Jonathan Swift. And uh, Swift is so interested in the human body and the feeling little men throwing ropes across you and um, the, the way a giant nipple on a huge woman looks compared to the size of a human head and that sort of stuff. And there is definitely a great difference between uh, the way Swift would think about the human body and the way Herbert is so much more concerned with the mind. But there is a certain extent where although 
we're in this setting, this land, this planet where our eyes are constantly getting battered with sand. I don't feel that same sense of place. I don't feel as though we're physically there, you know? But I suppose before I did praise the um the mental landscape. So I suppose it might be asking too much to want both. I don't think it's wanting too much. I, I mean I, I definitely get your your you know, it's strangely like like we, we get the description, for instance, of Paul learning to ride the worm, for instance. Um and despite the fact that this is a very like physical act, this is a very you know, this is something it's it's sort of an exciting sequence in the book. Um, we don't really get a sense of like what the maker hooks feel like in his hands, for instance. We don't get a sense of uh, uh you know how <laughs> what even life is like in the in the set. You know, we don't get a sense of like what does it feel like to get to take your still suit off once you're. Mm inside and that's you know there there's no you know the the book just isn't interested in that it's it's interested in the in the kind of the the big picture and in terms of the kind of the the sociological uh wants and the that sort of thing much more so than like, trying to put you in this situation as a reader he's not interested in in portraying that element of it um and i think that that's I mean, I, I definitely think that's a fault of the book. I mean, I, it would be nice to kind of get a better sense of what did it actually feel like to wear a still suit. But at a certain point, it's almost um, the sort of historical view that he's taken in yeah. terms of the writing kind of requires it not to have that. I mean, it, it feels very much like, you know, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, much more so than it feels like a novel, necessarily. Um, yeah, no, be. it's it reads as though it's coming from a second-hand source. And that does keep you at that distance I was talking about before, doesn't it? Um, it also just sort of, uh, I mean, when you've read a lot of uh, kind of science fiction of this era, particularly, um, you know, you look at something like the Foundation Trilogy, and this is very much, I mean, you, this it would be really interesting to compare this directly to the Foundation Trilogy, um, because there are a lot of really clear similarities in terms of... Uh, structure in some ways um although they're very different in other ways uh that's another you know you look at writing of this era in terms of this genre and and it there really is this kind of lack of physicality to a lot of this and it is because these are a bunch of you know let's be honest you know nerdy white chubby guys who spend a lot of time sitting in front of a typewriter and less time actually going out things you know (laughs) yeah um you know, I, I have no doubt that Frank Herbert, uh, you know, was was capable enough in the desert to to be able to uh, kind of care for himself. But I'm not sure that he had any real interest in uh, <laughs> like long term, uh, you know, backpacking in, in the middle of the Sahara or something like that. That's that's not the sort of thing that these uh, writers were really interested in. They were interested in kind of the big picture ideas and. Um, yeah, but once you bring it up, yeah, no, I definitely get that sense. You're right. Um, it it is very uh, abstracted from the realities of the day to day, isn't um, it? Yeah, uh, isn't it fascinating the way that we get this view into an author's own experience of the world in a way that we simply never would. They they leave out these unconscious uh, signposts of how they've experienced everything up to this point where their own um, priorities lie day to day it's um, you know you learn so much about someone like Shakespeare um, because of 
the poetic illusions that he goes for, and that's how you can build your own sense for that person. It's amazing, really, what we what we show without knowing that we showed it. Um, and yeah, Herbert's obviously someone who never thinks about the fact that your uh, your clothes might be uncomfortable in the heat of the desert. And it doesn't feel like it's a particularly hot place either, does it? You know, but I don't want to dwell on uh, on this. It's only a little sidebar I'm thinking about. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it is it is interesting, despite the fact that everyone is uh, constantly concerned with the heat and the and the lack of water. You don't really get a sense of uh, it. Really, doesn't feel hot. It just feels like oh, this is it's, it feels barren more so than hot. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think there's also there's a bit in the. Uh, um, that might actually be intentional, um, because there is this bit in the um, uh, one of the appendices, uh, the the bit that's talking about the ecology of Arrakis. I don't know if you you read all the appendices or not, um, but it does uh, describe like for for the most part in the middle latitudes on the planet, um, the range of temperatures is not. I mean, it's it's not very hot. You know, for the most part, um, so I think it is. It is kind of portrayed as more barren than, um, you know, it's not supposed to be Saudi Arabia. It's supposed to be North Carolina, but with no water. I think it's sort of the uh, sort of the perspective, you know. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I want to go back to something you're talking about about the uh, the fighting itself um, and the the kind of uh, intellectualism of it, and just uh, uh, put a little button on something, and that is. Uh, I think we might be attempting to view the fact that these are people in this upper class, um, and not even upper class. These are these are these are people who literally own planets, right? You know? the, the ruling class. I mean, this, right. this is this is a ruling class to a degree that no human being has ever been, you know, mm -hmm. in, in human history. And not only that, but this is this uh, sort of far future where people are literally bred into these. Um, uh, into this way of ruling and, and to the point to where, you know, there, there's a lot of emphasis put on the fact that like the Atreides have hand signals that have these very like specific meanings and that sort of thing. I'm wondering if with the way that these characters are kind of portrayed as fighting and the, the head spaces that they enter, I wonder if it's supposed to be, you no, know, these are, this is what the ruling class is like, you know, this is what their like decades of training has given them. And what the, if they are born into this sort of thing? I wonder if we're supposed to be slightly abstracted from it, um, because we never do yeah. really get a sense. I guess the closest we get to really getting inside somebody's head in a uh, kind of crisis situation is um, one of my favorite characters we haven't talked about yet. It's uh, Leah Kynes, um, the uh, Imperial planetologist who uh, yeah. dies um, uh, accidentally. Uh, he doesn't have that same kind of very alien perspective. Um, when he's in a crisis, you know, moment, he's yeah. he's much more kind of kind of in that uh, in the moment, and, and it's much more physical. So I wonder if that is to some degree intentional on Herbert's part. Um, in that case, what I would have wanted is a few more of those um, of those things that show the rule, rather than the exceptions that we're surrounded by. Um, but you're right, um, the planetologist is a really recognisable human being. And um, one of my other favourite characters is uh, Joni Halleck, who um, makes mistakes and who gets distracted and is probably a little bit past his prime, but kept around out of loyalty. Um, 
that's definitely two examples of people who, and even though Halleck is a um, a well trained warrior, indeed a warrior in that trained pool, um, you set you get a sense of his human frailty more so as well. Yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of the people who are not the leaders, a lot of the you know who aren't one of the Harkonnens or one of the the Atreides, the people who serve these houses, um, are allowed much more latitude in terms of uh, kind of having much more human perspective. Um, you get little hints of, uh, I mean, even somebody like Thufir Halat, who is uh, the uh, Bentat, who um, first serves House Atreides and then is later uh, becomes uh, kind of beholden to the Harkonnens and becomes uh, that, even though he is a Mentat and has the uh, this kind of mental calculation that he's constantly doing, um, you definitely get a sense of, like, he's not He's not quite behaving in the same way that they, uh, the leaders, the the dukes and the uh, emperors are. You know, you get a little bit more of a sense of like him as a as sort of a human being with desires. I mean, um, Yui, who is a really important character in that first, you know, third of the book or so, um, who is supposedly under this, you know, conditioning where he can never be disloyal and yet has become disloyal because the Harkonnens have his wife and they've tortured his wife, you know, um, which is a very kind of human thing you know um it doesn't feel like some you know plans within plans within plans although he his ultimately it's his uh, kind of plan within plan that sets off most of the plot of the book right yeah yeah um as you might expect um from what you know my own political bent i am i am going to run into an issue this fact of these leaders well they're just straight up the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a very Aristotelian view of you know uh, leadership and and uh, I mean this is this is a I mean it's almost like how do you even claim it to be problematic because it's so explicitly bad, right? I mean I don't, and this is kind of one of those things, and I, I'm actually interested in your perspective on this. I mean, do you think that? Herbert, the writer, seems to be kind of endorsing this sort of politics? Or do you think he's just portraying it? Um, I would have to... Mm, I would say to some extent he must believe it, because the good, great leaders are so good at what they do, and they're perfect for their situation, and they're kind of surrounded by loyal men who do the bidding and know their place. Um, he sees the way that um, these um, these inherited positions can go wrong and bad people can get there, but he doesn't have an issue with the structure of an all-powerful great leader at the top. I don't think that he would particularly have an issue of there being a, uh, an emperor if the emperor was a good person. Um, he seems to be okay with structure and hierarchy, as long as the one at the top is uh, fit for the purpose. You know? Do you think he? Do you think that Paul Atreides ascending to the throne at the end? Do you think that that's a? a this is a complicated question, but that's why I'm asking. Do you think that's a happy ending, or to what degree do you think that's a happy ending? Like, how do you I feel about her, that? Do you think Herbert's trying I, to say, and now the world is just again because Paul Atreides is at the top? Maybe I'm having a little bit more of a reductive read on it than is there. Maybe I'm giving Herbert too little credit. But I believe that that is, in his eyes, a happy ending. In my eyes, it is not. Um, because there's so much um, 
potential for all the way down the line for this planet to be misused and its uh, resources to be stripped um, and all the other stuff about this colonial system that these noble characters in the book don't particularly question, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that perspective at all. I, I mean, what I'm kind of agnostic about what Herbert feels about these characters in a sense. I know that there is, there are huge schools of criticism around this and, and different ways of interpreting sort of the political, the ways that the politics view in this. And that was kind of why I started this podcast the way I did, because there's no way we could get into all of the different interpretations that people have. Um, but I think the fact that, um, Paul has essentially decided to let the jihad happen if he can have his uh, revenge. Um, I think that that is portrayed at least in a a slightly complex way. I don't think that that's like, oh, well, you know, I kind of was joking earlier. It's basically like the book ends and it's like, oh, well, we're going to kill billions of people. But hey, Paul Atreides gets the pretty girl to be his wife now. So, you know, how nice is that going to be? Um I think that there is a little bit of complexity there, but but I mean the book is not nearly explicitly as anti-colonialist as I wish it had been. Um, you know, we really, despite the fact that we get sympathetic Fremen characters and we get um, sort of Leah Kynes and we get Silgar and and we get a certain sense that through their eyes, um, we're definitely viewing all of this through these noble characters. And that's something that's going to continue, I think, through most of the series, is we get very limited views through anybody who isn't a noble. And I think that that's, I mean, that that's a fault with the way Herbert has just kind of set this up, is he's really only interested in the nobles. Like, there's no sense in which the Fremen go, fuck you, quits outside of Reg. We don't care anymore. We're going to take our destiny in our own hands. We don't need Lawrence of Arabia. We have our own we're, we're going to find our own destiny, you know. Um, the the book absolutely presents it as, as sort of this, like, well, of course, Paul Atreides is just this heroic character and this figure, and of course they're going to follow him blindly because, you know, that's just what you should do because he's a superhero. Um, and that's, there is this explicit, I don't know if I even call it fascist, I mean, that's just feudalistic, right? Mm, yeah. I, I mean, the, the book is almost uh, glamorizing feudalism. Um, yes, it is. It, the entire structure, as I've said before, is medieval, and you pointed out it's um, it's Roman, it's um, it's any of those great empires, and it it doesn't question that situation as much as it should. I don't need to have my uh, my lefty liberal takedown of uh, empire handed to me, but. At the same time, I do need to have, you know, at some point, maybe an intelligent underclass character saying, what are you guys doing here? Why are you here? Why can't we just rule this planet? And that, that, that at least, I think, can happen without making it into a, uh, a, a an overtly political um, pamphlet for the uh, Communist Party, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's no one really critical of Wadib at all, um, within the, at least no no viewpoint character that we get. I mean, the closest we get is probably Hera, 
Um, yeah. And that's just because, like, he decided not to fuck her. Like, that seems to be her the whole of her. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, come on, you know? It's also, like, he's supposed to be 15 at the beginning of this, and, like, I think 17 or 18 by the time the uh, the book ends. And uh, it is easy to forget that this is all supposed to be happening to a to someone who's literally a teenager. Um, yeah. I was I was very conscious of that, you know? <laughs> when I read the book as a teenager, I'm like, well, this is right and just. And now I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, yeah, politically, I mean, it's almost it's almost absurd to talk about uh, too deep in terms of like it would be really nice to get a a more uh, a a slightly less racially encoded and a slightly more um, <laughs> interested in the indigenous population view of this because it's so explicitly a book about like noble houses competing. I mean, it's it's um, I was I was really kind of reading this and thinking, you know this could be a worthy successor series to Game of Thrones. Like, it would not be difficult to basically take this world and uh, design this sort of, like, hyper-violent, hyper-sexualized, um, you know, sort of TV series around this general idea, you know? Uh, no, good point. Uh, and, and I, you know, if anybody at HBO is listening, um, I will happily come on and consult for a large paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> you can include me somewhere as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We're gonna we're gonna produce the next hit HBO series. Um, you're gonna sell out to the to the corporate mass there, but uh, yeah, no, it would be it, you know it, it's just it's so obviously the you know, courtly dynamics and I mean the art of Canley and the the art of assassination. Um, I think, and I could be misremembering, but I think it's actually explicitly said at some point in one of the one of the other novels that um, there is this commentary on the fact that uh, you know assassination being uh, sort of the way that these um, houses and empires seem to work is actually a good thing because it means that you're not actually warring armies against one another the way they did in the battle days. Um, and so the idea that we're using subterfuge and poisons and that leaders are killing other leaders and that um, at least that's better than, you know, millions of people dying in uh, foxholes or whatever. Um, I remember that being something that, that actually explicitly gets stated in one of the future um, novels, but I could be misremembering that entirely. And it's not in this one because I was looking for it. Well, I would, for myself, I would rather see um, the Kaiser take a bullet than have uh, an entire generation of young men get murdered in a great war, you know? So <laughs> there's a tiny part of sympathy I have for that, certainly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if... Uh... If it was just the ruling classes killing each other, I would have much fewer problems with war, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, my friend uh, Neil is a history professor in Canada. He's always said that always against the death penalty, except in case of heads of state. And I think that's uh, a defensible position. Yeah. No, I could, I could definitely see that. Um, and you get a lot of that here. I mean, there are a lot of people die in this book um, who are. I mean, there are a lot of just kind of faceless soldiers who die, and a, a lot of kind of faceless, like, Fremen. And, you know, there's a lot of talk of, oh, we lost two of ours for ten of theirs, and that sort of thing. There's a lot of that in this book, uh, where nameless soldiers die. Um, what did you think of the, the sort of the, the the military tactics of some of this? Like, the, the sort of... Uh, the sequences that are sort of based around, uh, oh, armies are massing over here and this is happening. And uh, did you find that comprehensible and followable and exciting? Or, you know, come, come, what are your thoughts, if you have any about that? Well, I, I do read a lot of uh, actual history and a lot of military history falls in underneath that. So um, 
I found it comprehensible just because I can use, I've got a fairly decent imagination for that stuff, whether it be uh, Gettysburg or the Battle of Waterloo or um, Sparta or wherever it might be. Uh, it's signed not particularly because um, it's it takes the general's eye view of a lot of these battles. Um, the best one, I thought, the most interesting, the most exciting little battle that happened is when Jester and Paul first come across the Fremen and uh, pulls up with his um, his bow and arrow or his sniper gun or whatever it is he's got up there and he's trained on someone without them knowing. That's interesting. I find I find battles at their most compelling when it's at that kind of very small scale, personally. Um, those big armies massed up against armies, you need to get a soldier's eye view, and I'm not talking about this from a political sense, but from a narrative sense. If this is going to mean anything, you need to get your close-up and follow a particular soldier for just a little bit, um, because that's what makes the battle real. That's what makes it a story about people rather than your statistics. Um, there's a Terry Pratchett line about a general who is a great general in the sense of if you um, subtract your losses from the enemy's losses and if the result is a positive number, then it was a glorious victory. You know, it's that kind of attitude to your armies and your soldiers. And um, as you know, I'm a I'm a pacifist, and I don't believe in wars for uh, war's sake. And uh, whilst soldiers are used um, by the by the upper class, by the ruling class, by uh, corporate <laughs> money nowadays as well, um, if there's a volunteer army, I do wish that there'd be enough education in that person's life where they hadn't joined the army, but. Um, but yeah, my in short, my sympathy does lie with the privates and the uh, fighting men. And when you come away from that, again, from a narrative standpoint, when you draw back, so you just see these two, um, these crowds of helmets banging into each other, it's not as thrilling as uh, high-budget movies seem to believe. I definitely agree with that. I mean, you know, it's 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 just sort of like effective. I mean, you know, the the opening uh, sequences of Lord of the Rings, or you know, like the, those sorts of things, can you know, it's spectacle, but it's kind of pure popcorn spectacle. Like, look at how big we can make this. Um, and in a novel, it's really difficult to portray that at all. And I think here, it's it's not. I mean, there there's no. I mean, for me, I, I read those sorts of sequences and my eyes kind of glaze over until I get to dialogue again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's just sort of like, oh, we can't use Lasguts because they have shields and the shields will draw the worm. And, you know, it's a, there's just a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of just kind of, okay, people are maneuvering. I get it. Let's move on and get to, like, a person again. Um, Even like, um, you know, The Next Generation, which is a brilliant series with so much intelligence behind it, when it feels the need to have a uh, a battle sequence every other episode, was the card saying engage? You see the red light going from one starship to another. It's unnecessary. You want him to get back to talking about philosophy of governance and that sort of stuff. You want him to get back to uh, some snazzy cocktail party where Riker's given some alien the eye. It's the characters that's important. It's not the uh, not the action. And that's what so much doesn't understand. Yeah, I think that, I mean, uh, and this is kind of one of those where uh, military science fiction is, uh, I mean, in terms of sales, you know, overall, military science fiction is one of the most popular subgenres. Uh, 
and you know there are i mean even though it's not for me um there are like particular authors who have a lifetime of experience in the military and who can write this in this sort of way that feels realistic for other people who are in the military for instance and do write it from a kind of um grunt's eye view in a lot of cases um and so i'm not going to say like it can't be done uh it is definitely not the sort of thing i'm necessarily interested in and i don't think frank herbert's particularly interested in that i think that he kind of has to include it in in terms of like uh it's kind of part of the world he's building but ultimately it does feel like it's at least um you know he kind of uses it to set a scene and then kind of moves on to something that he finds more interesting which is usually some bit of political intrigue uh, from some individual doing something. Um, the um, the last battle against the Emperor, I didn't find that particularly comprehensible. I don't know if I'd gotten to a certain amount of fatigue with the book as a whole. <laughs> the, but the, um, I didn't quite know or understand what was going on entirely. I, I, think, I think there's a sense in which the... I think Herbert got tired of writing it at a certain point. Um, and, and so here, I mean, I think we've spoken quite highly of the book overall, um, but structurally this thing is a mess. Um, and I, and I think yeah. that, um, I've, I kind of said, you know, you get 40% of the way through the book before you really even get the plot to begin in a lot of ways, or at least a third, because it's not until like the last 30 or 40 pages of part one where you get, okay, you, it kind of does his, um, uh, you know, his treachery and then, uh, you know, kind of Paul and Jessica are on the run and then they kind of, you know, that's kind of when the plot really starts. Everything else is just set up. And it's a whole bunch of characters that, while they're interesting enough, they're not, you know, you're definitely not following a through line, you know. Um, a lot of these characters are not, there's not a necessity for, like, the through for Hawat to even exist in this novel. No. Um, Gurney Halleck is an interesting character. He doesn't, and except for the fact that they kind of run into him towards the end and suddenly he becomes like a lieutenant, but there's no reason he has to exist in this novel. Um, this novel could be about a third the length it actually is if you were just wanting to tell this story. And yet, you spend so much time in this world and you kind of, the whole point is to kind of follow these characters around. But once he's kind of gotten to the second section, we spend some hundred pages or so uh, kind of setting up Paul as this, you know, Paul joins the Fremen, basically, you know, that's the middle section. And that's really the only plot point, except for then you're kind of following the Harkonnens and they're kind of like, what happens is they kind of rule ascendant on an Arrakis again. And then the third part is really just Paul rides a worm. You get a little bit of the background of like who Aaliyah is and who Jessica has become and, you know, Paul, um, and Chani are getting it on and all that sort of thing. And then there's this big battle that just seems to kind of happen. Um, I have no idea what the what's really going on with that battle, except it happens. No. Um, they use atomics against a, a, a feature of the desert, and apparently that's supposed to be this uh, this huge deal, but um, we don't really get a sense of that in the in the novel, like we don't get a, it's not, it's not brought up often enough for that to really to have any heft with the reader, at least in my opinion. And then uh, it really just kind of becomes Paul shows up and is chatting with the emperor and uh, starts killing people. And that's kind of the, the book, right? Yeah. Now there are certainly stretches. You say about losing a third. There's a good old chunk of this book where I'm bored reading it. Um, I'm enjoying the book, but I'm bored. And it's, um, it's not a book that, it is a book that feels a little bit like homework at times. And some of that is because of how well realized the world is. And some of that's because the pacing has got no clue where it wants to be. You, um, 
you're not ever really following the people you necessarily want to be following all throughout the book. Uh, the main characters, as I've said, aren't that interesting to me. It's, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this because boring isn't the best word to use because it's it's never like I'm, I'm yawning or checking my watch or whatever, but it's a book I'm very happy to put down for the day um, and not have to repeat for another day. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I find... Uh... I find like rereading it that once you kind of know where it, where it's going on a second reread, a whole bunch of this is uh, skimmable, um, just yeah. because it has no uh, forward momentum in terms of uh, what's of where the story is actually going. Like all the political machinations, for instance, with the Harkonnens and the in the kind of final two thirds of the book is basically you could you could summarize that with. <laughs> You know, uh, the Baron uh, decided to to put his uh, his nephew Fade in charge. Uh, Fade is nicer than the last guy, and Fade uh, like kills uh, slaves in the arena. Like you could literally do like ten pages and establish all of that, and then just move on. You know. Yeah. Um. And yet, some of that stuff is is fairly interesting. I mean, you know, the kind of interactions with um, uh, how I, the Baron, for instance, and how it clearly has no patience for the Baron's stupidity, uh, which was like the part, probably the, the stuff that I found the funniest is when the Baron thinks he's being really clever, and uh, really he's just being cruel, and um, the for how it is basically just laughing at him, uh, which I always think is amusing. I love what you said about the the lack of forward momentum. You you expressed exactly what I was going for. It's a very very static book, isn't it? Um, and there's a lot of stopping and talking throughout it. Yeah, it, it's a book that needs a little bit more of a momentum. It needs more of an engine. And looking back, I can see how much of the of the story that seemed like it was about to be an interesting left turn it's all just dragged back to the, to the centre and stayed in the same place again. So, uh, yeah, it's very well said. Um, I do like the, the Baron Hartman and his own inflated sense of self-worth. That is, uh, that's nice. And his nephew, I think, is a decent character. Um, I think he's really well portrayed as just being this ruthless, win-at-any-cost kind of villain. And he's a more effective villain than his uncle because of that. I mean, he's a really, I mean, you know, the the the, uh, the sequence that you get where he's um, actually fighting in the in the Coliseum um, is actually one of my favorite sequences in the book. I love that bit um, yeah. because it is like very uh, you you actually get inside somebody's head who's actually fighting right there. Um, you really get the the way that the society treats these things and uh, the fact that. The fact that like there are slave pits and that this is just a part of the society, it is kind of one of those alien bits of the culture where it is so alien to twentieth century, you know, sort of American experience or Western experience. And yet, uh, the fact that the book treats it so casually is is one of the strengths of the book, I think. Um, because it, it really doesn't again, it doesn't give us that outside perspective. It just treats, oh yeah, there are slaves and uh they're here to be killed, and that's what this is supposed to be right like this is just the way the yeah. book works um the harkonnens are treated as uh i mean it's it, it is interesting that the atreides do not uh keep slaves that the that the harkonnens do but like the i mean you want to talk about capitalism <laughs> we could talk about capitalism and you know the atreides do they're just not called slaves right um and they're they're kind to their slaves so it's fine um Sorry, I got completely sidetracked on that, but I think that's a no, really. No, I'll tell you about the time that I was uh, I was reading. I probably have told you this. 
I was reading the biography of uh, George Washington, the by Ron Chanel, mm-hmm. and uh, Chanel does a typical thing with the founding fathers where they go, um, yes, well, Washington did keep slaves, but he was a fair master and he refused to sell off families. Um, and he was, you know, comparatively really rather gentle with them. And I was with uh, my partner, we were walking down the road, and I said to her, oh, yeah, you know, like, uh, and he was good because he didn't whip his slaves very often, right, you know, and we got a little bit further around the uh, corner, and she said, you know, when you were saying that stuff about how good he was to his slaves, and that's fine, there was a bus stop with black people just glaring at you, you fool, be more aware of your surroundings. (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, there is that, I mean, and this is, I don't know if you want to get into it, but, um, there is this sense in which I don't think the book is examining this, but I think we as sort of like leftist kind of thinking men can, can have a conversation about the way that culture influences those sorts of moral behaviors. And um, to what degree would we expect someone like, you know, I think we, we, I think we're presented as the, the Duke Alito is a fairly decent human being and yet seems blind to certain aspects of the, you know, society in which he lives. Um, and Herbert isn't caught. Herbert's just trying to tell this story about these courtly dynamics and, and trying to do this faux 17th century, um, you know, houses of Europe battling each other with a subterfuge thing. Like, that's really what he's trying to do, right? Um, yeah. And so he's not really paying attention to that. But I think we can certainly view it through that lens. And we can say, well, well, can we kind of view Ducolito as a decent man? And kind of go, go, well, yeah, he's one of the ruling classes. And like the fact that he doesn't whip his slaves is uh, like portrayed as this good thing for him. I think that is an open question. And I think that's an open question when we study history as well. You know, I mean, it's almost like viewing it through the lens of fiction gives us a certain amount of distance from it. But certainly here in America, we have this uh, just blind worship of these founding fathers who like were horrible fucking human beings, like almost to mm-hmm. a person. You know, yes. um, and you mentioned a book. I'll, I'll mention the American Slave Coast, which I read this year, which is uh, just an astonishingly good book um, about the uh, history of the uh, uh, Atlantic slave trade in America. Um, and I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't heard me blathering on about that on Twitter a few months ago. <laughs> so, um, uh, but but particularly like explore some of these questions like explicitly. Um, I don't know. Do, do you have a uh, do you have any thoughts about that as it relates to the book, or am I kind of off on a limb here? No, I don't think you are. Um, I think that we all of us at some point find ourselves thinking about these moral equivalencies and the the planet that's around us and the the, the way that morality does change over time. And what's fine here um, might not be fine later on. Um, and what's fine in this situation might not. Um, I'm being very vague here, so let me get specific. With the Duke <laughs> later and his um, his standing at the top of these men who are basically serfs, as you say, it's a very feudal relationship. Well, um, he's literally got people who, like, you know, we have families who have served the Atreides for centuries, sort of thing. You know, uh, yeah. Duncan Idaho, for instance, he is, which now that I know that Herbert lived in the Pacific Northwest, the name Idaho just sort of seems to have this whole new meaning, right? But, uh, you know, the, the Idaho like family has apparently served the, the Lido uh, clan for 
millennia or something. And uh, when you get like that perspective on it, you go like, what, what responsibility does Duke have? Does Duke Leto have to not be a douchebag, right? Yeah, it's um, it's 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 true, isn't it? You know, they're born into bondage. These people, they're born underneath forever the uh, the master of the house. Um, and so the fact that he's nice to these people that have no lives of their own doesn't mean that he's a good person. You can separate the the good qualities within him, but because he's within this system, whether it be a slave owning system or feudalism or um modern day capitalism at the head of some corporation that he's inherited, because he's allowed himself to continue to be a part of that and let it go on, um you can't judge him as a good man. You can understand him that he was born into this case and he didn't go out and enslave the lower classes to him. Um, and he's trying to make the best of this situation. But because he's unwilling to sever his ties to this status that he obviously enjoys, you know, there's a lot of talk from these powerful people about duty and the white man's burden and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, <laughs> <laughs> the true duty is to humanity and to let it uh, flourish with uh, no gods, no masters, you see. So I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right in what you say about later. Well, through that lens and here, I'm just, uh, again, not disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, probing this slightly. Um, how do we feel about Paul's teaching the Fremen the weirding ways then? Because that's one of the things he's, he's said to have done is essentially it's not just he's kind of taken over and become the, the ruler, but he's taught them some of these uh, like Bene Gesserit techniques and such and given them some of the uh, power. So some of what gives him his power, he's given them at least some of that. Uh, how do we feel about that? I mean, do, do we feel like that is more just or is that in some sense like he does that so he can solidify his power sort of thing? I do. I think it's a token, isn't it? It's a bargaining chip that he's given and then lived up to. I don't get the impression that he would have done that unless um, it made sense for his own motivations at the time. He's not doing that out of wanting to do good for this place that he's found himself into selflessly. He's far from a selfless character. Um, he's doing that because he promised to, so he could survive at that point, you know, in his life. Through that lens, probably the most moral character in the in the book is Leah Kynes, who, uh, and or at least is his father, who were uh, imperial um, planetologists, who are essentially administrators. You know, like they're the they're the tech guys, the scientists who work for the empire and come and like administer the the affairs on a, on a kind of like um ecological level i mean they're basically just taking water measurements around the planet and you know doing that kind of work but um then they explicitly kind of uh, behind the scenes ally themselves with the fremen um and are kind of bringing that um they actually are working to use their their technology and their skills and their knowledge of science in terms of transforming the planet to aid this uh, indigenous population directly and absolutely. taking a sort of leadership role, but a leadership role that's absolutely based on this is what I can bring you as opposed to um, some like um, feudal authority or fiefdom or, or 
know, yeah. lineage or whatever. Um, which, I mean, I don't know, to my mind, through that lens, he's absolutely the most immortal character in the book, right? That's a brilliant point. It is, it's not about what people can do for you. It's about what you, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to organize for people. You can take on a managerial role, but there's no need to make people subservient to you, to have someone who's going to shine your shoes like I'm sure Paul has as the leader there. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about the planetologists from that perspective, but in that way, they're really interesting. I would love to have followed the journey that they went on, what took them to this place. And um, what's the name of the planetologist, the, the one that we're most encountering? Um, Liet Kynes, L-I-E-T, yeah. Kynes is his last name. And then his dad, I forget his dad's first name, but uh, the last name is Kynes again. Um, you I get a Kynes. sense of him in one of the appendices. In one of the appendices. Right. I, I didn't read the appendices. Um, I really like the way that Kynes is half believing in the Bremen mythology and he's watching how Paul um, is kind of approaching the situation and he's half in the badge for them. You know, he's halfway there, but he's still skeptical. Um, yeah, I would have, yeah, it's true. And he's got, from my perspective, an entirely noble motive for setting off this chain of events. I think, uh, if any of our partners was in that situation, we'd do all we could to uh, keep them safe. So, and he feels bad about it. You know, he reveals as much as he can as, he, as soon as he can. So, I think there's a strong, in fact, I think there's a definitively strong case to be made to support your view of him as the most moral character. Yeah, no. Um, although you might be getting, uh, you might be getting Yui and Kinds confused slightly, because Yui okay. is the doctor whose uh, wife has been tortured by the Harkonnens. Uh, okay. Kynes is the planetologist who has basically gone native. Okay, yeah, I think I have to play those characters. Yeah, but but I think um, I think the point stands um, regardless that um, yeah, I've read the book more times than you have, so <laughs> <laughs> no complaints there. I'm not trying to call you out on that. Um, but yeah, no, um, I think the point stands regardless. I that is a yeah, I really like this. You know, who is the moral man on Arrakis? You know who. What does a moral man on Arrakis look like? And I think, really, anything that's not giving back control to the uh, Fremen and uh, destroying the yoke, not just the Harkonnens, but of the entire, uh, you know, kind of feudal colonialist system, is, uh, that's that's the way to behave, you know? Um, and is also, an empire any more free than at the time when it falls? Um, you know, you might be living in chaos, you may be less safe, which is two things I absolutely don't downplay, but there's certainly so much more liberty when the uh, when the Huns are at the gate in Rome than when, uh, you know, someone like Caligula was out there. Right, and I, I think, I mean, we shouldn't, I mean, again, we, we you know, I live in a, you know, in the United States in an air-conditioned house and, you know, <laughs> and I, you know, I have I have plenty of uh, extra water in my in my body. Let's put it that way. You know, I, I don't I don't thirst for anything. I, I have adequate health care. Um, you know, so so far be it for me to um, speak for the oppressed uh, populations of the developing world, um, for the real victims of capitalism. You know, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But certainly, I think we could 
through that lens, and again, this isn't something Herbert is <laughs> at all embracing, but through that lens, we could certainly uh, kind of say, well, what are our obligations in our lives towards these, uh, towards the rest of the people in the world, and to say, well, I'd use the, the privilege and the wealth and my position within this uh, world in which I live in whatever way I can to help those who are in the who are of the lowest of the low on this kind of mm -hmm. social class, you know. Um yeah. Kynes obviously has the ability through his position to directly help. And wouldn't it be nice if we all could? Um but at the same time I think that uh you know, even just speaking out about it is better than nothing, you know. <laughs> and uh it's, yeah. It's a good deal better. Um because you're using all the power that you have. Um, I'm not a believer in propaganda. I believe that telling the truth to people enough will change the world. And no matter how small the scale you're able to do it on, even if you're just conversing with a cab driver day to day, if you can leave some of the compassion that you brought that wasn't there before, it's <laughs> it's worth the uncomfortable conversation sometimes. I'm not I, I'm not holding myself up to a great standard. I'm not saying I do this every day. But hopefully by making ourselves conscious of the good that we're capable of doing, as opposed to feeling so powerless in the face of this crushing system, feudalism, capitalism, wherever you find yourself, you, a person can fool themselves very easily to think and be fooled into thinking that they have no agency in this world. You're just one person. You can't do anything. You can't dismantle the divine right of kings. But there, there is um, gradations of privilege, and um, the likes of us can do, admittedly small things, but helpful things. I agree. Yeah, that's uh, that's not where I thought this podcast was going to go, but that's why we have these conversations, right? <laughs> that's what it's for. Um, what is something, Daniel, that you love about a book? I love the mood. I love the uh I, I love the juxtaposition of uh, this uh very almost stylized uh far future uh feudal society with the fact that the word Heisenberg gets mentioned every now and then. Uh, I, I love the some of the language and um I love the complexity of it. I love I love living in this world. Um, through the through the pages, I I love some of the prose. Um, it's I don't love the story, and I don't necessarily love the characters, but I love the world, and I think that's really mm. what we're supposed to get out of it. I think it's really about the world, more so than like any particular thing that's really happening in the in the scene. You know, the world is the eponymous title character. You know, right? Yes, yeah. right there. So yeah, and I agree. I I love planet. I love the complexity. And um, I, I, I do, I'm so drawn to these explorations of the mind that the book has. Um, so yeah, there's, there's quite a few things to love about June. It's not a perfect book, but it is one that I will read again, probably within the next five years. I can definitely see that. Um... I don't know. I might, uh, I might revisit some of the sequels at least, uh, kind of idly and just kind of see what, see if there was anything worth, uh, kind of examining in that. 
But um, probably not anytime soon. Uh, my my plate's pretty full. But uh, do you have uh, <laughs> do you have uh, any kind of uh, final thoughts or other thoughts? Anything else I, I haven't really brought up yet um, about this book? No, in, uh, in I feel like the there's main... a lot we just haven't mentioned at all, but like I feel like we've hit the high points at least, you know. That's kind of the way uh, you and I have discussed these things: is we bounce along the uh, the most important stuff in an entirely random fashion and uh, come out of it feeling, you know, a decent sense of closure. So yeah, that's where I am. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, thank you, James, for uh, coming on the show, and thanks for uh, kind of recommending this. I'm really glad I got to read it again, although I probably won't reread it over the next five years. It probably won't be. So I, I think I'm done with this book for, for a little while, but um, it was really nice to get to revisit, and I appreciate that, and I hope the audience has enjoyed our conversation. That's my absolute pleasure, as you'd imagine. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. Uh, why don't you uh, tell people where they can find you on the internet? Go to petslibs.libson.com for um, the continued adventures of myself and Kevin Burns for a world of pets lives and the bonus content that I sometimes publish, as well as the Shabcast with Jack Graham, one of the uh, greatest podcasts out there, and one not coincidentally often supported by my uh, my good friend here, Daniel. So go straight to petslibs.libson.com. And also arudatornpress.com is or a one-stop shop or uh, anything related to this podcast, really. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at JMCM1916. And uh, I always love chatting with people who listen to the podcast, so do get in touch. Yeah, definitely go check him out. Don't check me out at all. Um, I'll include uh, notes in the uh, in the edit. So uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, James. Thanks for everybody for listening. And uh, until next time. Uh, the still suit is closed. I'll do. <laughs>